Today, uh, we continue in our very long journey through this book of Deuteronomy. And one of the things that we believe about preaching is that it is a part of our spiritual formation as a community and as individuals. It's not the whole thing, but it's a part of, of God's work in us to transform us. And we believe that God's transformation of our lives takes a very, very long time, which is why we will often spend weeks or months and sometimes even years in a particular book of the Bible, not just so that we can get everything out of it, but so that it can get things out of us. You know what I mean? One of the things we say around here is we don't just read the Bible, the Bible reads us. And so this morning we, we sort of welcome that slow transformational work of God in us by the power of his word. And with that said, We'll start reading to you today from Deuteronomy chapter 10. We'll start in verse 12 through 22. And now Israel, what does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. Are you awake today? Did you? Are we? Okay. Sleeping already? It says that in your Bible. And be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Today we will explore one of the most crucial and let's be honest, awkward themes of the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And if that makes you uncomfortable, you can just be thankful that you aren't me, okay? So, uh... Listen, this is, a ser- this is a sermon on circumcision, and I hope it cuts like a knife, okay? That's actually not that inappropriate. That's the least inappropriate joke I wrote this week, and I edited the other ones out. I, uh, in an attempt to lighten the mood, come on, okay? We're here to have some fun, but um, in an attempt to lighten the mood, I, I say that because the, the truth is, is that this theme which is a, is a central theme throughout the Old and New Testament. It's actually really hard to comprehend what's happening in the Bible and what God is really trying to teach his people if we are not willing to, um, to do the work of comprehending it, okay? So we're gonna dive in today. The truth is, is that this sermon is a sermon about what God wants. Some of you care about sermon titles, so there it is for you, what God wants. This passage is an announcement of what God requires, of what he asks for, and what he wants from his people and from a community of believers, what he wants from you and what he wants 
from me? So we're going to explore today three different questions that I think are really crucial to help us understand what God is trying to show us. And the first question is this, what does God want? Like, like what does God actually want? When was the last time you asked that question about your own life? What does God want? We are obsessed with self-awareness, self-actualization, self-discovery, self-fulfillment, self-promotion, personality, desire, and felt needs, and I'm not against all of that, but what does God want? Seems to be the question at the heart of the biblical writers, and in particular the text that we're at today. Is God getting what he wants out of your life? That's the first question. The second question is this, and I know that in a room of this many people and in a, in a room with just people coming from different backgrounds, that many of us are asking the question, why? Why should God get what he wants? And that's an honest question, which makes it the kind of question that I think God actually wants us to ask. But many of you today, many of us today are asking the question, why should I be concerned with what the God of this ancient book that I'm not sure has any application to my, to my actual life, and frankly, I'm not really sure if I believe in this God that they're talking about, why should he get say over this world and my own life? And if you're asking that question, I want to tell you today that you are welcome here. And this is a safe place to ask that. The third question is this. And I want to spend a, a good portion of our time in this question. How? How can I give God what he wants? How can God get what he wants out of my life? Some of us come, up, come into this room today and we're asking the question, can I actually change? Can I be transformed and made new? And if so, then how? So there's our three questions. The first one, again, is what does God want? What does God want? What does he ask for? Moses is the preacher of this text, and he is announcing that to the people. And here it is. He, he answers that own question in verses 12 to 13. I'll just want to read to you again, and I'll paraphrase along the way. It says, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, there are five sort of particular um, desires of God that come to us in that text, and it goes like this. Fear, imitation, love, service, and attention. I'll break them all down to you uh, for you real quick. The idea of the fear of the Lord, we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, is this, is this awe-filled and joyful response to all that God is and all that he requires. And what does it mean to walk in his ways? Well, this gets at the idea of imitation. In biblical ethics, the idea of walking in the way of something, it's actually um, what we think about as discipleship to Jesus. When Jesus' first disciples were um, discipling under him and they were learning how to live like Jesus did, they actually literally walked with him and along the way of walking with him they became like him as they began to do the things that he was doing. The third thing is this is love. God wants our love. 
we think that we have very poor definitions of the word love in our own sort of modern um, culture and our English language. But the idea of love in the Hebrew got after this idea of loyalty, that God's people were to remain loyal to him. The fourth thing it tells us is that they were called to serve him. And the idea of service got after this idea that for hundreds and hundreds of years, God's people had been enslaved to masters in Egypt. And God himself had rescued them from that. But also, even as he rescued them, he called them to now serve him. The fifth thing that God calls for is it says in our Bibles, it says to keep his commands. And that sounds kind of, kind of jumps off the page to us as sort of like a blind obedience. But what that actually means was the word keep means that they were to give careful, conscientious, and constant attention to God and God's ways. Fear, imitation, love, service, and attention. What does God want? I'll put it for you in one word. Everything. God wants everything from his people. Abraham Kuyper said this, he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And isn't it a tendency for us Maybe if you're new to walking with Jesus, maybe you're still checking this whole thing out. Maybe you've been following Jesus for decades, but you begin to realize that there are areas of your life, maybe one, maybe 20 areas of your life that have not been, I love the biblical word, have not been yielded to the Lord, that haven't been surrendered to the Lord. And the truth is, is there is not a square inch of your life that God says, hey, that that part is just for you. You do you with that. Sometimes we imagine that God says, I'd like your Sundays, but Saturday nights are all for you. You ever been to Nashville? Yeah, okay. Uh, Same response as the nine, okay. So Nashville, I'll tell you about Nashville. (laughs) Nashville is a lot different than Portland. In Nashville, it's cool to go to church. It's the Bible Belt, you know what I'm talking about? And uh, the truth is, is everyone and their mom is in church on Sunday morning in Nashville. But, um, but Saturday nights in Nashville is crazy, okay? I'm telling you. I um, just described to you most country music songs. That's actually the flow of the lyrics of them. It's like, Saturday nights is wild, but Sundays is Jesus. You know, so that, um, and that's actually true. That is the culture of Nashville. I, I, there's some people that I love that live in Nashville, and, um, and I love Nashville, um, particular this area, uh, particularly this area in downtown called Broadway. And so on a Saturday night, you can walk into any bar, don't judge me, okay, but you can walk into any bar, which is also a music venue, um, and you will encounter some of the greatest musicians that you'll ever see in your life. Like literally walk into uh, a small venue and you're like, that's the best pedal steel player I have ever heard. You could walk out that door and through the next door. And I remember literally walking into um, this place called Roberts one time, you should go there. And uh, there's, there's somebody playing guitar and I walk in, I'm like, this is the greatest guitar player I've ever heard in my life. I'm not kidding you. He was 15. Okay, and then I quit music that, I quit music that night. And so I'm there to just enjoy the musicianship and uh, these phenomenal musicians, but most of the people are there to enjoy the liquor, okay? And it gets kind of wild in, in, um, 
in these spaces on Saturday night. But I literally see people, you see people like walk out of the venue um, very late at night and they'll look at each other and they'll be like, I'm gonna see you tomorrow at church. And I'm all about grace, but I'm like, bro, I don't know if you're gonna make it to church tomorrow, okay? I'm not <laughs> judging you, but I don't know if you're gonna get there, but I want you there. And uh, the truth is, is that if we fail to ask the question, what does God want? then we will just find an answer that works for us, won't we? We'll think, okay, God wants me to attend church one to two times a month, but my sexuality is just, that's just for me. That's for my choice. Or perhaps that God wants me to be loving, like generally to people at church, but throughout the week, um, the sort of online just vitriol that is so common, it's like, yeah, I can do that as long as I'm nice to the people that I'm actually seeing face to face. And what does God want? Apparently, he wants everything. Our full devotion, our love, our service, our attention, our obedience, and apparently, according to his word, all of this is actually for our good. He wants everything. And when we give him everything, it's the best thing possible. Now. I know that the second question, why? Like, why should God get what he wants? I know that that's in many of our minds today and hearts today. Why should God lay claim to all of our lives, not just a few hours a week, but to every aspect of our life? Why? Why is this, it's such a human response. And I think God's okay with it. I'll illustrate it this way. I was watching the Super Bowl last week. My beloved Niners, okay? Sports is hard. It's not, it's hard. And I'm watching them for what seemed like five hours. Uh, I'm watching them fight and battle and ultimately lose, okay? And it didn't feel fair to watch them in this game because they were playing against the greatest quarterback and apparently they were against the most famous pop star in the world at the same time. I was like, this isn't fair. And uh, like, I love Taylor Swift too, but like, I need a break, okay? Is anybody, I just like, I'm ready for a break. And so the game is over and I'm there with some of my offspring and uh, I'm at a friend's house and uh, some of the kids are playing outside and uh, it's great, they're having a great time. And the game ends, I'm not in a particularly good mood, but um, the, the dad of the house calls out to the kids and he goes, he goes, guys, it's time to come in. Night's over. And I hear one of the kids, and I'm not saying this kid's related to me, but one of them, just, just why? It's like, oh, okay. And my friend handled it really well. He's just like, because I said so. And I was like, that makes sense. Makes total sense. And then again, why? You know, it's just like, and then all of the rage of, of, the, of the defeat boiled up over, and I was like, I'll tell you why, and then we left. And I think that where I'm going with this is that response to God's demand, to what he wants, to what he requires in us, something comes up in us that, that I think honestly says, well, why? Why do you want everything? Why should you get every aspect of my life? 
Isn't some of it just for me? And so what I'm grateful about in this passage is that uh, I don't like have to take you to another passage to give you God's why. We don't have to go like do through a litany of Bible verses to understand why. God in his uh, grace in this very text tells us why. And I'm gonna give you the why. But before I do that, I need to tell you something about the nature of the Bible. This is true. The Bible does not argue for God's existence. It does not apologize for God, nor does it read like an apologetics book that's like constantly trying to prove God. It does not argue for God, it announces God. God is not presented as a question or a debate, but as reality. So what is true? God is true. What is real? God is real. What can human beings rely on? What gives our lives purpose and meaning? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one God. And the Bible just announces that. And while announcing that, it actually welcomes our doubts. Because God knows our frame. He knows our desperation to find something, anything to hold on to. And he knows that we are so, as the hymn says, prone to wander. So if today, if you're asking the question why, the truth is, is he can handle that question. But there is an announcement for why God has the right to ask for everything in your life. And it is this, it's these three words that I'm gonna put up. Creation, calling, and character. Now, I'm not trying to be cute with like three words that start with C. I know every sermon has three points, but this is literally just what comes out from the text to us. The first reason why God has the right to ask and require um, everything from us is because of creation. It shows us this in verse 14. It says this, behold, which simply means look or listen. To the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heaven, and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. And so we get this rationale, but it comes to us as like a reality statement. Why should God get what he wants out of your life? Because he's the sovereign creator of all things. I love the image. The heaven and the heaven of heavens basically means behold, look up. Anything and everything that you see was created by God and is currently sustained by the word of his power. Look up. And then it also says the earth and all that is in it. And what that is an invitation to do is to look around because there is nothing that you could see when you look around that hasn't been made by and is currently sustained by God himself. He's the creator of everything. And that's reason number one why he has the right to lay claim to your life. It's because he is the creator of all things. Now that starts, the the sort of logic of this text, it starts with the general, like just look at everything. But then the text moves to this particular theme and it's the theme of calling. Verse 15 says this, it says, yet the Lord set his heart in love. And I just wanna pause for a second because that is such a beautiful passage of scripture. The God of galaxies, the God of creation, who sustains and owns everything that you could see has set his love 
says he set his love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Reason two is calling. It's that God actually called his people. Now last week we, con- we kind of considered this theme of God's choosing of his, in his grace. It's, it's not because Israel was a particularly righteous people. In fact, they were a, what is it? Stiff-necked, stubborn people. But what did God do? He set his love on them. So not only do the heavens and the earth belong to God, but apparently so do his people. God chose them. And I believe that God has chosen you. This is love, not that we chose God, but that he chose us. So one of the most profound aspects of Christian theology is that we are not searching for God like a lost coin that we might eventually find, but that we are in fact wandering from God and he's come after us, chosen us, and set his love upon us. And that is good news. And yet, that that idea of choosing, even when we hear it, I think for some of us it stirs up some questions, some challenges in the scriptures, like, so does God play favorites? More specifically, as it relates to ethnicity, is God ethnocentric? Does he love some and yet hate others? And we know throughout world history that some of the most horrific things that have been done in our world have been done as a misapplication of this word, am I right? Horrible things have been done because of a misunderstanding. But does God love some and hate others? Are the benefits of God only available to a select few, to the best, to the chosen? That's the question that sort of comes up to us when we we start talking about calling. And that's why the third aspect of why God has the right to make these claims on our life is so important. It's, It's the word character. It's because of his character. Listen to this in verse 17. It says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. So it's just sort of magnifying his majesty and sovereignty. But then it says this. It says, God is not partial and takes no bribes. He can't be bought. And then it tells us that he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and that he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God executes justice and is uniquely disposed toward those who are the most vulnerable in their society. God's loving care and kindness is not just sort of for a select few. Maybe the, the best at following him or the, or the ones who look the best. He is uniquely disposed toward the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. And that is a grouping of people that represented those who were sometimes accidentally but often purposefully overlooked. And oftentimes some of these are the peoples that would be the victims of injustice in Israel. So yes, the society during biblical times was patriarchal, and sometimes when we read that, it's, it's hard to take in. But the idea of fathers and husbands were in the most pure, sort of God-ordained form was that they were instructed to protect and care and provide, quite literally, for women and children. So who would protect the fatherless and the orphan? God says, I will. 
I'll do that. Who will protect the widow who's lost her husband to illness or war? God says, I'll do that. It gets after this idea that God is saying, you need to look after your own. You need to look after the people who are most vulnerable in your society. God says, I'm looking after them. And the question is, are you as well? But it doesn't end with just this idea of looking after your own. God moves to this theme of the sojourner. See, God has announced that he has a particular love and devotion and calling to Israel. And yet, the answer to the question is God ethnocentric is responded to by God saying, I'm actually highly committed to the sojourner, read immigrant or refugee that is amongst you. God would say, I've set my love, my heart on them. I will do justice for them. What is, what is the why behind God's right to make these demands of us? It's he's the creator, he's the caller, but also his character, his love, his goodness stretches out to the whole world. For God loved the whole world that he sent his son. And what you need to see is that this announcement about what God is like moves from an announcement to a command. Verse 19 says these words, and it should read to us like this. After God says all these wonderful things about himself, he says, you love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Israel's treatment of the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner became a litmus test throughout their history for whether they were following and imitating God. It was, this is, this is the test. Is your heart devoted to God? Is your mind devoted to God? Are your ways devoted to God? God would know by whether or not the most overlooked people in society were being cared for. Children without dads, women who'd lost their husband, and apparently those that were fleeing impoverished or corrupt or idolatrous nations because they wanted to come be a part of what God had done and is doing in his people. The refugee, the immigrant. God says, I love them and you must as well. I'm gonna ask you to stay with me for just a second, okay? Because there may be rising up in, in you sort of a feeling that is starting to turn into an email addressed to eric at riverwest.org. And uh, that's my actual email. It's public knowledge, so like whatever. Um, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna ask you to put the phone down and pick the Bible back up. And I wanna talk to you about the posture of our church. All right, I'm not making a case for drugs coming across our borders or violence coming across. I'm, like, I'm, I'm not making a case for that, okay? I'm not making a political stance or statement representing our church, but I would like to talk to you about the heart of God. In fact, I actually have to do that. That is my job. And I'm not talking about policy, but I do wanna talk about posture. 
the posture of our church, many of the churches that we partner with, in particular towards um, foster children and their families, and in particular and uniquely towards immigrants and refugees in our country, is that we will welcome and support them. And that is not a political statement. That's just, I, I'm not trying to be snarky, but that's because we love this book and we think that God's claim on us as a community is something we need to pay attention to. And the question would ring out in Israel's mind and I think continues to ring out in our mind that's sort of like, yeah, but, right? Yeah, but what about, and, and, and then you fill in the blank. But the truth is, is that God simply announces this. He says, I will know that I have gotten a hold of your hearts if the love that I've extended to you, and by the way, you were immigrants. In fact, you were slaves. Jesus became an immigrant the very first years of his life and had to be welcomed into a country. And, and God says, I'll actually know that my ways have gotten into your heart if that spirit of welcome is extended to everyone that you meet. And that when you meet people, they're not treated like a statistic that we should be suspicious of, but an image bearer of the triune God of love. He has set his love on all people, and he's actually demanded and called us to do the same, okay? This has always been his heart. This has always been his ways. And this is what he's asking of us. So God has something that he wants from us. There's a why behind it. But I want to get after the how. Like, how can we actually change? How in the world can I give God what he wants from my life. The late Dallas Willard said this. He said, the main thing God gets out of your life is the person you become. That's so good, I'm gonna say it twice. The main thing God gets out of your life is the person that you become. And I know that here right now, some of, some of you, you're, you're hearing this message and you hear the preached word and you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm actually trying. Like I'm reading the books, I'm showing up, we're having a prayer night, I'll be there. Um, but you're starting to wonder if you can actually change. If you can be transformed and made new. And if so, how the heck is that gonna happen? And that brings us back to that sort of awkward statement that we highlighted this morning. It's important that we look at, and it is that statement, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. So we'll avoid some of the particularities of that statement, but here's what you need to know. In the biblical story, when God calls Abraham, he calls him not because of his righteousness, but just because of God's sheer grace. He calls Abraham out and says, I will make you into a great nation. And he says, I will not just make you into a great nation, but I will bless the entire world through me. You will be part of my instrument of redemption for the whole world. And in particular through, as we trace the biblical story, um, the fact that the Messiah of Israel, Jesus, will come from your line. And that relationship, that sort of status, that commitment is, um, is the biblical word covenant. 
And the covenant God made with Abraham was sealed by this sign, this act of circumcision. And the truth is, is that why, you know, why it was that sign is uh, just not that important, okay? But that was the sign. And the truth is that the sign was limited. It was a sign of outward obedience, but the truth is, and we hear this all throughout the scriptures, the truth is, is that the sign could not change them from the inside out. It actually couldn't cause them to love the most vulnerable people around them. It didn't cause them to stop worshiping lesser gods in their hearts. It just wasn't able to do that. It was a sign that God had called and chosen them, but the sign wasn't enough to change them. And yet God says in this text, God says, circumcise your hearts. What in the world does that mean? Well, let's start with the idea of the heart. The heart in the Bible is is not the blood pumping organ that we have. The heart in Hebrew can also be translated as the mind. And it gets at this idea of the the heart is the command center of a person. It's the core. It's the center of a person. From the heart comes the ability to create and to initiate. The Bible tells us that out of the heart flows, like whatever is in a person, it comes out of the heart. And the deepest part of us cannot be changed with a scalpel in the hands of a human surgeon. But the truth is is that the heart can be transformed. It actually can be transformed. A human person can actually change. You can change. You can be made new. And the first step of that sort of lifelong process in this is, is this very important word in the Bible called repentance which is really a word that's at the heart of the season of Lent that we find ourselves in. I think that when God tells Israel, when he says, circumcise your heart, I think what he means is that you need to repent. Here's why I think that. You don't have to turn there, but I'm gonna turn to Leviticus chapter 26, which Leviticus is fire. It is a page turner, okay? Um, You've obviously not read it, so you don't know. But... uh, in Leviticus, God is instructing his people. And he's giving them what he demands, what he wants. And when you read the text, there's constant, whether it's Leviticus or Exodus or Deuteronomy, there's sort of this, as, as God makes instructions through his biblical writers, he's constantly saying things like, I know you're not gonna do this, okay? And this is that kind of text but God is calling them to something. He's making demands of them, but also he's realizing that they will not fulfill what he asks. And then he says this in verse 40 of 26. If they, Israel, confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they have committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, so much so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. What in the world is that about? God is calling his people to be a people of repentance. And I think this is what God's getting after. 
in Deuteronomy chapter 10, when he says, circumcise your hearts, he's saying it's time to repent. That word repentance is a really big word in the Bible. It gets after a couple of ideas. One, the idea of actually just confessing our sin, just saying out loud what we have done or what we haven't done confessing it out loud. It's sort of this godly sorrow over the sin and evil that is not just sort of out there, but, but is in here. And it's actually to turn from that evil and to turn towards God. To repent is to change our mind from believing a lie and actually beginning to claim the truth. And God's people have always been called to repent And this is what's happening in our text today. And I need to show you one more thing. Near the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is kind of given one of his last sermons, and they're all really good sermons. And in one of these last sermons in in chapter 30, he's, he's talking even more about this idea of repentance and forgiveness. When we confess our sins, God's faithful to forgive us. Something happens in verse six of chapter 30 that sort of haunted me this week. And it says this, after Israel will repent, and again, he's, God's constantly saying, I know you're not gonna do these things. But it says this, if you repent, it says the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. God is in fact the great surgeon and he and he only is able to cut our hearts so that he can heal them. In fact, the promise of the scriptures is that God will give us a new heart. He promises to do that. And he has. In Romans chapter two, verse 29, we are told that the circumcision of the heart is a matter of the heart, but that it happens by the spirit, not by the letter. The law God sort of demands over people, that in of itself cannot heal the human heart. God would have to do it by his spirit. And he has. And when we come into this space each, each week, we become a people who remind ourselves we cannot save ourselves. It's not our good works that has brought upon God's good grace. He's just poured out his grace upon us. And that, that, that question how can I actually change? How can I give God what he wants? Is answered right here. When we repent and we receive his grace and loving kindness, he gives us a new heart. And what happens when God gives us a new heart is that our duty actually becomes our delight. If you are in Christ, then your deepest longing, your deepest desire 
is that God would get what he wants out of your life. And the truest thing kind of flowing through your mind and heart and body is the reality that God, he actually has the right to ask for that. And that he's made a way for it to happen because he's given us a new heart. And so our practice as followers of Jesus, not just in the season of Lent, but perhaps especially in the season of Lent, is to become a people of repentance. There was a man named Martin Luther who, um, who he, his, he, he nailed 95 theses to, to a door, and uh, it really changed the course of history and the life of the church. And the first thing that that document said, the first theses that he wrote is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. So repentance is not sort of like a once, well, once and for all, get, a, get out of hell free card, okay? I'm just gonna go out and say that. Um, it's an ongoing life with God in Christ where we are learning to turn from evil and to turn towards God. The word repent in the, in the military, it means it'd be like you're marching this way and somebody yells repent and you're like, now I'm marching this way. And some of us today, we need to do that. Let me say that better. All of us today need to do that. And one of the supreme acts of repentance in the life of the church is to come to the table and to be filled with wonder yet again that, that the grace of God has been extended to like even me. And even you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've shown us and we thank you, Lord, for the moments that we share together today. We pray, Lord, that we would become a people of humility. The people who are just, our, our curiosity is constantly raised. What does God want in this situation? What does God want in this conversation? What does God want from me when I'm with my family? What does God want from me when I'm here worshiping in his community? Lord, we pray that you would help us to yield those unyielded parts of our lives to you so that you can continue your work of transforming us. Not by our works, Lord, but by your spirit. We thank you and we love you and we honor you. We worship you today. Amen.